0: I was just thinking, not only is war dangerous to your health because of the violence and because of the struggle to survive in enemy territories, or because of the harsh environments, but it turns out that even when some US soldiers return from overseas, the danger doesn't exactly disappear. You've probably heard of higher rates of psychosocial disorders among surviving veterans, things like depression or anxiety or PTSD. And that makes sense, because war is a traumatic experience. It challenges your physical and mental stamina. And when these parts of you are tested, it can either make you stronger, or it can break you down. But there are some conditions out there which vets are more likely to get than your average American, and these are less completely understood. One of them is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease, the absolutely horrifying motor neuron disease, which starts as a little bit of weakness, and then over a few years progresses to quadriplegia and death. In this week's installment of the Brainwaves podcast, we discuss the unusual correlation between Gulf War veterans and ALS, and the fact that U.S. veterans, for whatever reason, are at a significantly greater risk of developing this disease. Why that is, how we figured it out, and what it means for veterans in the U.S. government, that's what we'll be discussing today, so stay with us. Dr. Colin Quinn joins me for this week's segment on ALS among vets. He's an assistant professor of neurology at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: I run the ALS clinic at the VA, and I am the associate director of the uh, Muscular Dystrophy Association Clinic at University
0: of Pennsylvania. You might remember his voice from that incredible story about how he contracted Lyme disease as a resident. She still, she said, you know, that's Lyme disease. And I said, there
1: is no way I do not have Lyme disease.
0: <laughs> he did. He, he actually used those very words. Yeah, that yeah, Colin Quinn. This will not be as fun as the Lyme one. I'm sorry. But on today's show, I got to speak with Colin about the really weird observation that military service members in the U.S. seem to be at a greater risk of developing amyotrophic lateral sclerosis.
1: All right, so uh, ask me stuff.
0: Erica Mejia is also going to be helping us with today's show. Hi. But before we even get into that, I ask that Colin summarize what ALS is.
1: Sure. And so at its core, when I think of ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, It's a disease of weakness. Now, there's some additional components to it, but at its fundamental, it's a disease of weakness. And the way that we diagnose this disease clinically and what makes it distinct is the degeneration of both upper motor neurons and lower motor neurons.
2: So, two distinct population of nerve cells that are responsible for muscle activation. Injuring either can cause weakness, but in losing both, you see symptoms other than weakness. For instance, in lower motor neuron injury, you'll see things like...
1: Atrophy, cramps, fasciculations.
2: And in upper motor neuron injury...
1: It's kind of like if you've seen someone who's had a stroke, their muscles get tight on the side contralateral to the stroke. There's increased reflexes, increased tone, and spasticity.
2: Because with the loss of the upper motor neuron, you're also losing that descending inhibitory input
1: all of which can make it hard for a patient to move or to relax their muscles. The interesting thing about the presentation of ALS is that it's it almost always presents as something that seems like it could be an innocent finding, like foot drop. Most of the time, foot drop is caused by back pain, and it's very common for a patient with ALS to have a history of, oh, I had foot drop and then I got my back surgery and I didn't get better. And I don't necessarily think that the person who did the back surgery is to blame. It's really makes sense that this presents as foot drop and foot drop more commonly would be due to an L5 radiculopathy than it would be due to ALS. So focal findings.
0: I remember as a second year resident, I was seeing one of my very first cases of foot drop. The patient was a middle-aged woman. She worked security at a local bank in Philadelphia. She was athletic, and she was really into ultimate frisbee, and she came in to see us because she'd injured her knee while playing frisbee, and her foot was a little floppy. From her story, it seemed that she was fine during that day, and during a game when she tripped and fell, she landed hard on her knee, and since then had some trouble extending her foot. I thought it was all due to like a traumatic injury of the superficial perineal nerve, but some other parts for her exam didn't quite fit that story. For example, a superficial perineal neuropathy wouldn't result in weakness of ankle inversion or plantar flexion, which this woman had. So maybe there was a sciatic neuropathy, and the knee injury was true-true and unrelated. But the sciatic neuropathy couldn't explain her brisk patellar and ankle reflexes. She had those, too. So we got the EMG, and it confirmed our suspicion. She had ALS.
1: So over time, what people notice is that the foot drop
0: turns into
1: greater leg weakness or foot drop on the other side. It often spreads somewhat regionally, so if it starts in the right leg, you may notice symptoms next in the left leg.
2: Or bulbar symptoms like dysarthria, dysphagia, and eventually difficulty breathing. And all this can happen slowly over months or even years, or it can happen very rapidly.
1: Average survival, depending on which study you look at and which population you look at, is three to five years.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the age of these patients? I mean, these aren't your older patients, right? They can be old, but they It's usually.
1: interesting. So the, the, the risk does go up with age. It sort of actually maps onto what happens with a lot of cancers, where the risk goes up with age, um, and it kind of is most common in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and then it starts to decline. So while I have diagnosed people in their late 80s um, with ALS, it starts to be less likely at that
0: point. So age is a unique risk factor for ALS, and there are a couple of others, like family history and male sex, uh, until about age 65 or so, and then male and female kind of is the same, and then being a service member of the U.S. military. U.S. veteran status seems to correlate with a higher risk of ALS. Colin, can you give us some of the background on this? Sure. So
1: you, you said an interesting... Thing and I think correctly frame this as the correlation between ALS and military service, because I don't think we've gotten to the point of causation and military service. So there there was really kind of a series of studies that resulted in a kind of consistent sense that there is some connection between military service and an increased risk of, of developing ALS. After the Gulf War... 1990 to 1991. It seemed as though veterans were coming back with various uh, symptoms. Uh, A lot of them were kind of lumped into the Gulf War syndrome.
2: Symptoms like fatigue, muscle pain, changes in cognition.
1: But kind of beyond the Gulf War syndrome, there were people who appeared to be developing ALS. And I think that one of the concerning things was that these were not older people. And as we discussed, ALS risk tends to increase with age. So while you can see patients in their 20s, 30s, early 40s with ALS, that's somewhat unusual. So I think there was a sense of alarm that maybe the incidence was increased and that it was particularly potentially increased based upon the age of the the population. And there was one
0: initial. To set the stage, just so you're aware of the raw numbers. There are two new cases for every 100,000 people in the U.S. every year. That's the incidence. And the prevalence is about 6 in 100,000. And physicians in the mid-1990s felt that they were starting to see more and more young men for this kind of nonspecific Gulf War syndrome. And a good number of them were eventually being diagnosed with ALS. So by 1999, representatives of the Gulf War veterans reached out to their chief research officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. They asked that the VA look into this association... And in 2000, Smith and colleagues published their findings on over 2 million veterans. But the results were perplexing. They found that there was no correlation between ALS and deployment status. Two years later, Horner and colleagues published data on about 2.5 million veterans. Their results contradicted the prior study, and they found a nearly two-fold higher rate of ALS in deployed vets, who were from the Gulf War than in non-deployed vets. When the investigators of this study analyzed other risk factors for ALS, they found that deployment status carried an attributable risk of 18%, meaning that 18% of that increased rate of ALS was actually due to the fact that they were deployed. These findings have since been validated in other prospective cohort studies, notably one that came out of the Harvard School of Public Health by Weisskopf and colleagues, which found a similarly increased risk of ALS among veterans of prior wars, so not just the Gulf War anymore. And the relative risk remains about 1.5 to 2. You can see a nice figure from these investigators on our blog at brainwaves.me, which demonstrates their findings.
1: And they found that without regard for when you served in the military, which war you, period you would have been in, you had an increased risk. And I didn't find as high of a risk, but it was an increased risk.
0: So it's interesting because, well, there are a couple of like epidemiological questions that those studies all individually raise. And... You know, your initial point was that being a military service member being deployed to the Gulf War puts you at a two-fold increased risk of ALS, but the risk of ALS in the average person is extremely low. It's an extraordinarily low number. Although the numbers were statistically significant, kind of, like, makes me curious, like, how clinically significant is this increased risk?
1: Well, I so I go over this with patients a lot because I have, since I direct the the VA uh, ALS clinic in Philadelphia, you know, patients come in, and especially if they've developed ALS, they basically say, I was in the military, of course I developed ALS. And we do go over kind of relative risk versus absolute risk. So yes, your relative risk is increased by twofold, but the risk in the population is 2 to 4 in 100,000. So that means 4 to 8 in 100,000 veterans. That doesn't matter to you if you've been diagnosed with ALS, though. I will say that that yeah. as if, as long as you have this increased risk, I think, and you develop ALS, you, relative versus absolute definitional issue doesn't matter.
0: And I get that. I really do. I don't mean to undermine the importance of this increased risk.
1: I just want to point out that this increased risk is incredibly important from a, the point of view of someone who, from someone who works serving veterans, because that is why it is service connected. And service connection, service connection doesn't just mean, okay, we think this is somehow related to your service. We're sorry. It means very specific things within the Veterans Administration. And at the time that it was made service connected, it was the only, and I don't know if there is another one, it's the only one that's made service connected without regard for when you just had to be active duty. It doesn't matter whether you served what what war you served in, what your exposures were. Were you exposed to Agent Orange or not? You know, a lot of time um, is invested by veterans with other diagnoses in trying to document that they were exposed to something or had a specific risk factor for whatever they developed. Whereas this is basically, if you developed ALS and you were in the military, you are a hundred percent service connected.
2: There's a lot of statistics that go into identifying a higher incidence of ALS among American veterans, and a lot of biases that you could potentially argue. Maybe deployed vets get better benefits or better healthcare, and they're more likely to be diagnosed with any medical condition. Could that account for at least part of why vets are more likely to be diagnosed with ALS? Or that the event rates are so small that perhaps it was actually just bad luck? I mean, if we look at some of the original DMDC data, We're talking an average annual rate of 0.67 per 100,000 compared to 0.35 per 100,000, and we're talking about mostly young adults. And when you look at other epidemiological data, the average incidence rate of ALS is 2 per 100,000, but most of these patients are going to be 40 to 60 years old, so not your typical post-Gulf War vet in his 20s or 30s. Then there's ascertainment bias— which is common to any epidemiological study of this magnitude, where the collection of data may skew the results because you are missing or selectively targeting certain populations. Looking back at how most of these ALS military studies were conducted, initial cohorts of 1 to 3 million veteran records were reviewed, and diagnoses screened for ALS or possible ALS. Including all of them in your sample denominator, even with 10% of suspected ALS cases missing, you're still underestimating the risk in this population. So there are weaknesses to each of these study designs.
1: I do think that some of the studies, the earlier studies, ran the risk of people who were deployed may be more likely to follow up in a veteran's hospital and therefore more likely to have their disease captured as opposed to a person who wasn't deployed who maybe has less of a connection to the military and then may seek private care, and they weren't capturing the development of ALS in those, in those people. So I think that that was a criticism of some of the earlier studies. But I don't think you have that issue in a large cohort where you're really looking at what they died from.
2: And it was in some of these later studies that looked at mortality data to identify the proximate causes of death for veterans and non-veterans and deployed or non-deployed status. So maybe this data was a little more accurate.
0: Honestly, I'm impressed that the Veterans Administration was so quick to conduct this investigation and to prove that fact. You know, the risk of ALS was significantly greater among vets. You certainly don't see this in a lot of other groups, like like the NFL. The NFL spent more than 10 years denying allegations that its sport causes a neurodegenerative disease.
1: I think there's a lot of understandable concern that the military has some reason to hold back when it comes to saying something is connected to your service. I will say though, when I actually review these Institute of Medicine papers where they try are trying to determine whether or not they think something is connected to service, it reads like a very honest effort and that the they're really looking for a 51% likelihood that this thing could be related to service. And they're not looking for the level of certainty that you're Average academic um, scientist would be looking for in order to say these thing, two things are connected. In general, these reports, and, and I'm sure people could find counterexamples, but you know, neuropathy is a good one. Agent Orange and neuropathy. I've had to read this many times, um, the Institute of Medicine report, to try to understand what is the evidence. And you know, in that case, they came down on the side of there could be a neuropathy associated with Agent Orange, but it has to appear fairly acutely, that is a toxic neuropathy. It's harder for them to prove that a neuropathy that happens 35 years after you were in Vietnam is related.
0: So that brings up a good point in epidemiologic literature, that there has to be a temporal relationship between a cause and its effect in order to justify that relationship. So I just came out of an epi class, and this is right at the front of my mind right now. Um, They call it the Bradford Hill criteria. I'm glad
1: glad you did that because I don't know what the Bradford Hill criteria are. Well,
0: well, Well, they wouldn't surprise you. There are things like strength of association, consistency of association, dose response of the cause and the effect, and then there's also biologic plausibility. So each of these Bradford Hill criteria are used to justify a relationship between a presumed cause and an observed effect. What I can't seem to wrap my head around is, what is the biologic plausibility of being in the military and then developing ALS? Evidence, how does Sean Bird always
1: says this the The absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence, right? So i I don't agree that there isn't any biologic plausibility. I think that we may not have a sense of what that biologic link is. And there have been specific issues thought of. So pesticide exposure comes up repeatedly in the ALS literature, and there are various papers showing that pesticide exposure may increase your risk. There was some thought that aluminum exposure, I think that's in anthrax vaccines, could be an issue. But again, this is problematic when you start to look at maybe not the Gulf War population that you could start to drill down on specific biologic causes, but when you start to broaden out to that study from, from Harvard and think about.
2: The Harvard study being the 2005 paper by Weisskopf and colleagues that looked at service members irrespective of the wars they served in.
1: Okay, well, it seems as though the risk is just generally increased. The biologic exposures, you would think, would be pretty varied in that experience, you know, from the 30s to the 80s.
2: Because that study included patients who were born even before World War I, so quite a long time, and a lot of different wars taking place in different regions across the globe.
1: You would think that that would be a very different set of circumstances in different wars and in different times. So I don't think that there is is not any biologic plausibility. It's just we don't understand what it is. The other interesting thing to think about is, is there something about someone, people who go into the military?
0: Like maybe they have a family history of ALS. Or, or do you mean that they tend to be more physical people and you're talking about that head injury ALS connection?
1: Right, right. So there could be something about someone who is more inclined toward military service that could increase their risk. Some people have suggested that being athletic is actually increasing your risk for for ALS. Um, There's this kind of famous study of Italian soccer players and thought maybe it's head trauma increased their risk, but maybe it's just being athletic increases your risk. And you would think that if you looked at averages, the military population is more likely to be athletic. Now, that is highly speculative, but it's more to bring up the point that the importance of looking at correlation is that you know two things are connected, but why those things are connected could be well beyond the scope of your understanding. I think sometimes people get upset when I say that, when I say that there could be something about the type of person that would join the military, because it, it almost seems as though it's letting the military off
0: the hook but you don't think it boils down to just that that is the type of person who joins the military and they're already prone to developing ALS my bias
1: would be to go with the if we don't know and it was and it does appear that y- your service is related to an increased risk of ALS until we find some other reason we should go with it's somehow related to your service and that making it a service connected illness makes a lot of sense
0: the fact that ALS is a service-connected illness has surfaced a lot in this conversation. For the most part of the interview, I was kind of playing along like I knew what that meant. So we should probably talk a little bit about what service connection means, if that's okay. Yeah. I had no idea what it meant.
1: Service connection right off the bat means compensation.
0: So I asked Colin, what does that mean, that ALS is connected to a military service? What the government has done in response to this information, and how it affected the health care for veterans who suffered from it?
1: Yeah, so I will say at the outset that my experience is restricted or my kind of commentary is restricted to what I see at the VA in Philadelphia, because I think that VAs vary quite a bit. And as someone who has tried to set up a multidisciplinary ALS clinic, both in the private world and at the Veterans Administration Hospital, it was so much easier at the Veterans Hospital because the fact that it is, is service-connected, the VA takes very seriously. I think that they want to do right by Veterans and that it specifically comes up in conversations that this is a service-connected illness, we will take care of whatever the problem is. I have been able to staff up fully in Multidisciplinary Clinic in about six months we had at at some point we had more staff than patients that has changed over the last couple of years
0: and you mentioned compensation earlier what what kind of
1: compensation are you talking about so if you're married it's about $3200 $3200 a month in compensation these are ballpark figures which when you're dealing with a significant level of disability goes a really long way and then that degree of compensation goes up based upon level of disability
0: so if you need respiratory equipment at home or if you need nursing care at home then we'll step up the game
1: yeah it's 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 the VA and it's a bureaucracy so it's really about how many limbs you have that are weak and let's count them up and and that your your disability rating changes based upon that um but it does tend to correlate that the amount of services you need will be related to how weak you are and which how many body regions are severely affected
0: so let me ask you then How often do you see a patient and their needs are not met by the VA or the government?
1: So I would say there is no way to fully meet the needs of a person who's dying. You know, I just don't think that there's any way outside of having an incredibly loving family that will take care of you in that personal way. There is no way that any organization, any group can fill that gap. However... I do think that the VA does it very well. There is one area where I think it's veterans will say it's very frustrating is getting adaptations to their home. So number one, if you're in the private insurance world, you're not getting adaptations to your home. So it's amazing that they're even trying, but in order to get large adaptations, so having a contractor come over, widen doors, put in ramps. That is very a very difficult process because you have to get the contractor to make a plan, submit it to the VA. The VA has to prove it. They have to send it back. You have to f- find a contractor who's willing to get paid when all the work is done rather than some money up front. So that process can take a very long time. But because we know that, we can tell a veteran that early and say, we need to, even though you don't think that you have substantial enough disability Um, to warrant some changes to your house, it's better to start working on this process early so that when you need it,
0: it will already be done. It sounds to me like the VA is just extremely accommodating in these circumstances. Is that any different in the private world when you're seeing patients who have private insurance at Penn, or is it kind of about the same for both?
1: I have done both. I have done both. I have run an ALS clinic or been part of running an ALS clinic in the insured world, and I've done it at the Veterans Hospital, it is so much nicer at the Veterans Hospital because everything you think you should be able to do for a patient, you can actually do. You know, it would make sense if a patient needed a motorized wheelchair and a manual chair. But in the insured world, they'll only pay for one, and you always hope that the patient didn't have the insurance company pay for the manual chair. At the VA, they understand that, and they will give the patient both. It makes sense that people need help at home. You know, other than the hyperinsured, there is no real allowance for that in the insured population. We both give people compensation to pay for what we call aid and attendance, but we also directly provide home health aides. So it's a limited number of hours, but oftentimes people take from that home health aid pool that we give them and they hire on their own. So no, I. I will sound like a show because I I believe in the, in what they're doing.
0: Well it's a good thing that I have so many FBI agents listening to the podcast. <laughs> they're not gonna come after you now. No, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that about sums up the interview. Thanks again, Colin, for coming back and talking with me on the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Again, Dr. Colin Quinn, everybody. So just to summarize what we discussed today, it does appear that there's a small, albeit a real, association between ALS and veterans. And this association exists regardless of the war in which the veteran served or the branch of the military that the person served in. But the data out there is not without flaw. We do lack the methodology to confirm causality, And we don't have an explanation to the biologic plausibility. And of course, we're limited by the small number of event rates, which are three or four per million young veterans. But we got to be grateful for that, because ALS is a horrible disease, and certainly not one that the men and women who serve this country deserve to acquire. That wraps up for the show. If you liked what you heard this week, let us know by rating Brainwaves on iTunes or Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word let others know about brainwaves huge thanks to colin quinn for joining me today and sharing his thoughts behind the mic this week's episode was produced by me jim siegler with the voice and help of erica mejia music by john watts on heard music concepts and josh woodward the drum fanfare and flutes were by the united states army old guard fife and drum corps i'm jim siegler for brainwaves here in philadelphia and i'll talk to you later